learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hello to all who know it's not show friends, it's show business. And thanks, you know, what I got, got higher than I thought was I would. That? You know, for spending some of your holiday time with the 41st dose of Scoring at the Movies. What you're about to hear will be laced with eggnog, but also spoilers. I'm the ambassador of Quan, man, whose morals and late-night memos would never get him fired, Ryan Ellis. And here's my loyal partner who only shoplifted the pooty that one time, Mamofo, Chris DiGregorio, who's Mamofo. Oh my god, Ryan, is that your Cuba? Well, the second one's the kid, right? Because he says that during the game. Oh yeah, he's going to be the first Tidwell not to use that word. <laughs> I'll let that... you live. Yeah, I'll let you live. Thanks, Ryan. Is it too cliche to say you had me at hello? It is not, because we're in the movie this is where that was said. This is a movie of There's so it? many great lines in this movie. What did you say you are? The Ambassador of Ambassador Quan. Ambassador of Quan. That's the line that they thought was going to be. Cameron Crowe did, yeah. <laughs> like he that. thought that would be the one to take off, not show me the money. It's a pretty bad line. It's not even a word. It's so clearly an attempt to make something viral, and no wonder it didn't take off. But mm. It was like offhand, what, three or four oft-quoted lines like show me the money is the one right but you, then you complete me and yeah, you had me hello the two back-to-back lines in that mm -hmm. movie this line's not quoted much but the kid early on in the montage of golf we see and it's craig stadler i believe is his coach right because the kid when he misses the shot says darn it what the heck coach you don't know diddly spot about golf <laughs> ah, my freaking ears <laughs> it almost sounds like that was dubbed over but this movie we watched the dvd for you which i loaned you and i watched it on stars here in canada which is through crave whatever all the fucks were in there, so it wasn't like the kid was being censored. Yeah. I guess he's censoring himself, which is actually a funny little touch. There's an awful <laughs> lot of swearing in this movie, actually, for what is, in some ways, a family film. In some ways, it is a family film, but I would be shocked and awed if any kid actually ever watched this thing from start to finish, because there's not a lot in there. Okay, not a kid, but young teenagers, maybe, or preteens could possibly enjoy Why would no, why not? It's funny. Cruz was huge back then. He was dumb man in the mid-90s. Is there any humor that would appeal to kids? Maybe T not. Teenagers, okay. maybe, and we all know that teens do not know the f word ryan like, <laughs> they never use nobody it. in 2019 or even 1996 would know what the <laughs> f word is i think this is a movie for adults of some kind even though i think it's super cute and funny and tom cruise is about as manic and awesome as you can be is it his best role. work it might be his best work i think it's, it's way up there it's one of his best roles like as far as suitability for him mm. now i will say there are moments that i thought were a little bit cringeworthy in this movie and we'll hit on them as we go through when he's trying to truly romance Renee Zellweger, there were moments where it felt super creepy. But 95% of the movie, he is awesome, and he carries the movie. I think Cameron Crowe was envisioning Tom Hanks yep. for this role. He wrote, he wrote it, wrote it. Yep. Can you imagine anybody but Tom Cruise playing this role? Not really. Hanks, I could see doing it, but Cruise is better for it. Online on the IMDb, there are so many names, and this is almost always true about big movies, that were speculated for the main yeah. roles. Even Rod, but especially for Jerry and Dorothy. You just keep going through and, okay, I get it. Other people were considered. Of course. Some yeah. of the more interesting ones, though, Janine Garofalo apparently pretty much had Dorothy, but then she didn't lose weight or something like that, or Renee Zellweger was found by Cameron Crowe, oh, really? and she ended up being terrific. But Garofalo pretty much had the role by the sounds of it. Winona Ryder, they screen-tested thought... her with Cruz, but they looked like brother and sister. Yeah, I'd read it was Connie Britton, by all intents and purposes, had the role, and then 
they found, like I said, Renee. Okay, and right. She got it. A lot she, of conflicting stories, sure. I know, who knows? You could have the agents telling their clients, yeah, we're this close, you've almost mm. got it. And in reality, they've done the read, they've done the screen test, and they're really thinking, yeah, I don't know, it's not quite right. So who If knows? the movie was made now, I could see Chris Pratt playing. All the, yeah. the Chris's. Chris Pine, maybe even. <laughs> All the Chris's. Jerry Maguire. What was the Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium, where you have a different Chris in the role every few scenes? Oh, no, you're thinking of the one where Heath Ledger died, and they had to replace his character in yes. the fantasy sequences? Yeah, that's... That was not, not... No, that was Dustin Hoffman, the Wonder Emporium. Oh, well, I might forget the name of this movie. I should know it. The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. That's the one. How did I mix that I up? I love when Heath Ledger says that, at least in the trailer, he says, The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Just like it was the Joker. Very Joker-esque. Because the Joker role was before... He did that very last movie. He died yeah. when they made the movie, of course. All right, well, we have topic here. This is going to be a long podcast anyway. Let's get into Jerry McGuire. Although, before we do, wow, this your is going to be a blue podcast. Another is quote, because it... that's in the movie. Kelly Preston says that. Jerry McGuire. Yeah, Kelly Preston. Also good in this movie. She is very good. Well cast. Very attractive. I oh, forgot yeah. how Looking attractive great. Kelly Preston was. And he probably knew her through John Travolta, because they were already married, and they're all, I think, all three, but certainly Travolta and Cruz are Scientologists. Now, did you notice, and I don't know if this was intentional, I got to believe it has to be intentional. The scene where Jerry Maguire leaves and Renee Zellweger says something to the effect of, man, whoever's got with him has got to be a classy lady or something. Funny line, classy babe. Yeah, and then they're banging up against the bookshelf. Never been better, never been better. Never stop fucking me. Behind them, there's a book on the shelf and the only title visible, and I couldn't read the entire thing, but the first word in the title in big bold letters is bitch. <laughs> Kelly Preston tells him, You want me to be with another woman for you? I would do it. And he, yeah. he says, We don't have to tell each other everything. I just finished coming. She prefers brutal truth to loyalty. Yeah, basically well, she in the she later says a thing that people have where they're all touchy feely or whatever. Like, I don't have that. Mm. So it made me wonder was that some prop guy chuckling She's to himself? Bitch, yeah, like, okay. saying, Yeah, this is the bitch of the movie. Be, so yeah. I'm going to put this book right here. And any film critic that notices that is going to have their time with it. So crack that beer. What do you got there? Oh, yeah. So this is nominally a Christmas movie. There's a Christmas tree. Yeah, the movie ends at Christmas. Yeah. Wonderful life. Esque. Yeah, so ish. Okay. Jerry! Uh, Jerry, where's the kids, Jerry? <laughs> I'm here for my wife. Wait, that came across more Bane esque than I intended. Sorry. <laughs> you were merely born to sports agency, Jerry. Or you, you merely adopted it. I was or born to, build, to it. Or to building houses in this small town in upstate New York. Oh boy, this is going to be a long and rambling yes, podcast. So, anyway, this is Krampus from Muddy York Brewery. I figured it was kind of seasonal, even if it's not quite the Santa Clausy beer. That horror movie is about Christmas, isn't it? I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, Krampus, I think, is a Dutch folklore demon that punishes bad little girls and boys. Oh. Sort of the anti-Santa, I think. Anyway, seasonal. Well, we are posting this on Canada's Boxing Day, and just December 26th for Americans. I guess they all go back to work, but we will have the day off. Not Boxing Day, but isn't there a post-Christmas holiday on the 26th for Americans? Oh, maybe so. They get Friday off after Thanksgiving, I think, don't they, basically? So why not the 26th after Christmas? Who knows? All right, so Jerry McGuire was released by Columbia TriStar in mid-December 1996. It was a very big success. One of Cruz's string, in fact, he had, what was it, five or six in a row. They made $100 million back when that was the thing. Now, that's not so impressive to do that. Not that hard to pass $100 million even on one opening weekend, but he did it over and over again because he was the biggest star in the world. Hanks was up there with him, but Cruz was the biggest guy. Yeah, Cruz was huge in the mid-90s and almost more than any other movie I think we've done for this podcast. This is a movie where the time in which it was made 
is so clearly evident. It wears it on its face. You've got the awkward convergence of computers and cell phones versus faxes, faxes and little black books and Rolodexes and the awesome yet terrible fashion and hair. Like, it's all a grand tapestry of mid-90s. Even how much a player gets when it's a great contract. Oh, yeah. It's not that great anymore. No, it'd be very middling. When they threw out the insulting offer of, what is it, like $1.8 million over three years was the only offer he got. Not even $1 a year. And he's supposed to be a superstar, man. <laughs> he makes miracles happen out there. <laughs> I think that's below the Major League Baseball minimum for rookies now per year. I think they get 760000 a year or something. Really? Major League and minimum. this is a guy with a very short shelf life. Yeah, like you said, 10 years. And incidentally thoughts. in this movie, it's got a lot of happy ending kind of elements, but a lot of not happy elements. And one of them would be Rod's story, which is you see him in an MRI during one of the montage scenes. Yeah, I don't have a concussion. This is bullshit. He is not going to play that many more years because most football players don't. And, of course, the big red letter scene at the end of this. Rod's injury in that big game is not that believable as far as I'm concerned, that it would no. be that serious. But they couldn't have a stuntman even be put into mortal danger. Oh, but, th- there you go. There's my nutshell. Let's do the nutshell right now. No, nutshell. See, you play a violent game on Jesus' birthday and a guy nearly gets paralyzed. Don't play <laughs> games on Christmas. They say it is literally Christmas Day when that game is happening between the Cardinals and the Cowboys. Okay. And I think Marcy's worried that he's dead. You really cracked that nut. Cracked the nut. How about that on the day after Christmas? That's right. You stopped yourself to do the nutshell. So you're saying you didn't think the injury was believable? Like you didn't think... Did he be knocked out from that? It wasn't terribly clear based on the grainy video, even though they did replays Mm -hmm. within the movie. I think what they were implying was that he got knocked upside down and was meant to have landed essentially on his neck or head. Yes. So it could have been a spinal injury. And you see the... The trainer the, even says that. Could yeah. be his neck, could be his head, could be his <laughs> spine. I believe that the injury could very well have been serious based on the way he landed. What I was actually laughing at a little bit, Jerry says to Marcy after that happens, is don't worry, he's got some great doctors attending to him. <laughs> and all that they've got is they say to each other, it could be his head, it could be his back. Yeah. So rather, hey, smack! <laughs> yeah, hey, wake up! Come on, wake up! <laughs> Rather than stabilizing his neck and putting him on a stretcher and getting him out of there, they're just clapping their yeah. hands in front of his face. And then he's like, oh, he's okay. And then they let him break They hands. would never let him do that. <laughs> this is a man that might have a possible concussion or spinal trauma, yeah. and he's up there breakdancing and spinning Clearly on his he's neck. fine, and maybe that's why this is, again, mid-90s when this is happening. And this is different now because there's no way you'd even let him get up. Because of the concussion thing alone, yeah, let alone any kind of neck problems. This is one of Because back things... then, concussions were more like, oh, you rang his bell. Yeah, have some smelling salts and get back out right. there. It's fun. It's a great moment when oh, he finally is. lets loose and, you know, as he's hanging from the railing he's, he's doing with the his fans. Running. Dennis, the GM, finally gets it. I know, I gotta pay him. I get it. Yeah. Just yeah. odd why he would finally realize he's gotta pay him. Although Rod had a great year, and this is the culmination. This, this is the culmination. underdog team is gonna make the playoffs now. They had to have a moment like this somewhere towards the end of the movie because. This whole season is preceded by the conversation that Rod and Jerry have. You can take the three years at 1.8. Or it's your walk year. Or it's your walk you year. better not get hurt. Exactly. And so he's made it to the last game, and you have to have that <gasps> hold your breath moment. Did he get hurt? Is it all going to be for nothing? And he did, because he's not going to last too much longer. No, but he got so his... thank God he got that contract. He got his $11 million and change. And also, Rod Firestone, I think is his name is, he said it's guaranteed. Maybe the most unbelievable aspect of this movie was that somebody would give a wide receiver a fully guaranteed contract after a hit like that. Who's already undersized, apparently, for an NFL wide receiver. And they actually address that because, what can you do? Cuba Gooding himself is not that tall. Yeah. Taller than Tom Cruise, but not that tall for a wide receiver. Did you find it as amusing as I did that this guy is on this talk show after the season ends... And he doesn't find out from his agent. That is also odd. The, so cinematic, but so phony. The reporter gives him the offer, 
it's not been signed. It's not been accepted. No paperwork has been. Doesn't completed. he have to sign it too? Yeah, Obviously, does. his agent does, and maybe lawyers and everything else. But I think the player also has to sign the contract. Can you imagine being on a talk show and somebody says, "Oh, by the way, the offer from your team is X," <laughs> and you're responding to it on live television? Can you imagine mm. if he didn't like the offer? If it was nine point eight million over four years, and he's like, mm. "Fuck you, Arizona Cardinals! This is bullshit!" And he storms off the <laughs> still set. not enough. Yeah. Well, another thing that isn't completely believable, I guess, but he gets to have that moment, which he repeated at the Oscars. If you watch his Oscar speech, one of the great Oscar speeches of all time, when they start playing the music, he just keeps on saying names, and then everyone starts giving him a standing ovation after because it's just so enthusiastic, he's so believable. If he really didn't feel that happy and that over the moon about winning an Oscar, then he's a better actor than he even was given credit for because he is so much fun to watch. And the next year, Damon and Affleck did the same kind of thing when they won for writing Good Will Hunting. That's right. So there's that scene where Rod is outside in the hallway in the scrum after the game, yeah. right? And this is where Tom Cruise points at the GM of the Arizona Cardinals and he makes that... That's Glenn Fry, incidentally. The musician Glenn Fry. Cameron Crowe almost always casts non-actors in acting roles. Jan Wenner, who ran Rolling Stone for years, and of course Crowe worked for Rolling Stone, we see that in Almost Famous. My favorite of Crowe's movies, actually. I love this movie. I like that one even more. But he's got the role as Jerry's boss. Not a lot of dialogue and screen time, but he's in it. And then Glenn Fry is quite a bit of dialogue, actually. Mm. How close was Jerry Maguire that he even says, Dennis, we've spent Christmases together. You spend Christmas with the general manager of the Arizona <laughs> Cardinals? <laughs> yeah, I know. I introduced you to your wife. Yeah, that was a weird relationship. He points at him, and okay, then he yep. makes that motion. The and thing with the hand means the money. Yeah, what was that from? It's like, come on. The oh, Simpsons. He's, he's, yeah, he's doing the thing. That means money. That means the money. Bev and I love doing that all the time. But what was that scene? What episode in The Simpsons? Yeah, I couldn't remember, but I was laughing it's, my ass off. It's when Krabappel, who I guess is the teacher's representative of all the other teachers at school, and Skinner are fighting over something to do with the teachers. So they're at some kind of meeting, a PTA meeting, an assembly, something like that. And he does that you finger gesture. Fingers, and then you hear yeah. somebody in the audience, rubble, rubble, rubble. The thing with the hand means the money. <laughs> yeah. And Kabapo just goes, come on. Oh, she's got a point too. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't remember the episode for the life of me. I remember that specific gesture. Yeah. That I've done rubble. that so many times. When he's doing that, all I can picture in the background is the reporters amongst themselves doing that, saying, oh, he's doing the thing with the finger. That means the money. That means the money. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Another funny thing in that moment is when Jay Moore is pretty good as the rival agent, Bob Sugar. Tries to hug, I think it's Jake Plummer? No, maybe not Jake Plummer. I don't know who the athlete was. It was an actual be. football player, and he says, why don't we have a relationship like that? He just tries to hug him. <laughs> Get off of me! The awkward approach yeah. for the... <laughs> I did like Jay Moore in this. He's always a very good, not-too-threatening heel. He's, he's a, a dick He's a bit of a this. smarmy dick, yeah. but you never feel too threatened. He actually believably sells that whole scene where they're in the restaurant, and he's firing crews. Yeah. You know, it's not all about you, man. I had to carry this around for a week knowing I was going to have to fire my own mentor. How about a little compassion for me? Yeah, like, yeah. he sells that moment. He's, He's also more believable sports agent than what Jerry ends up being. Because oh, I yeah. love Jerry Maguire's character. We've already made that clear. And Cruz does a great job of being so earnest. People said to Crow, you'll never get Cruz. He won't play a loser. And in the end, Cruz probably realized, well, that's part of the reason why you take a role like this. Because it's not like me to play this kind of character. Yeah. But Moore's character is more believable because that's what agents are. I'm sure there are plenty of guys. Lee Steinberg is who Jerry Maguire is based on. Right. Lee Steinberg's an actual agent. And he is the one who introduces Jerry to Troy Aikman. Remember Troy from the Super Bowl party? <laughs> and the Cowboys won the Super Bowl in reality earlier that same year. That's so right. they were actually referring to... I think they shot the movie in the early part of 96 and it came out in December of 96. So they'd won the Super Bowl, one of their many earlier that same year, but that's Lee Steinberg, an actual agent, and apparently it's based on him. So he must have had some kind of, or maybe he was always like that. Maybe he's just a nice guy agent, but most of them are more like Bob Sugar. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm sure it's true. I'm sure it is too. And I really found it interesting that Cameron Crowe wanted to make a movie about a loser who makes good, and he chose a sports agent 
who is, up until this point anyway, very successful at his job. He's an educated lawyer. He's incredibly good-looking and look charming. The, look at the office he has. Yeah, incredible. Like, he's he, their star agent. He's a star agent. He's got a parade of beautiful women that he's had relationships mm-hmm. with throughout his life. He gets fired, and he has nobody of any value, apparently, in his life. So there's sad aspects to his life. But I'm like, if you're going to have a loser character, this is about as much a late 80s, early 90s, California slash New York, successful businessman type as you could possibly have. It and is California, I think. Oh, no, it's California. I'm thinking about the prototypical 80s businessman. Okay, yeah. More in the mold, I guess, of Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan character. Right. That's supposed to be your loser character? <laughs> yeah, the movie sure. is a rom-com. It's a sports movie. And in some ways, as you're saying right now, and we talked about Rod already, some of the elements with him, a fantasy. Oh, yeah, of course it is. But it's fun. There's no point in this movie, I think, do you feel terribly down or sad you didn't shed any tears i shed no tears i mean oh i did really of joy Ryan? yeah of not joy. sadness of joy okay rod's whole moment is phony as we already talked about that i think it is the way that it all plays out the way they let him get up and break dance maybe shed tears and i don't remember this time but other times the you had me a hello scene did you see it again as you almost always do with the tom cruise performance he's trying so hard but then again, Daniel Day-Lewis never gets criticized for trying so hard, even though it's, you've got to call me Mr. President, you've got to do this, and you've got to do that. Really, what's the difference? The method actor, who's kind of annoying about it, really, as much as he's a great actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, Cruz isn't the most natural actor in the world. He has to work hard at it. He's that kind of guy. Somebody compared him to Troy Donahue one time. You know who that even is? No. Some nobody no actor from the 50s or 60s. He was good-looking, but had no substance. Are you kidding me? This is the guy who did Born on the Fourth of July and did a terrific job, yeah. way against character. Bev and I talked about Rain Man almost two years ago. Hoffman's great, but he's even better than Hoffman is in that movie. Magnolia, people generally seem to regard that movie. And some other things he's done. He's been great as Ethan Hunt. This is the same year, by the way, he did Mission Impossible, the first one. Was that 96 also? That was also 96. That was the number three movie that year. This was the ninth biggest hit that year. So like I said, this guy was in the string of monster hits. Independence Day was number one that year, but he had two of the top ten. We've talked about Cruz when we've done other movies by him, and I think we both agree that there's a lot more to him than a hollow pretty boy face. Days of Thunder, not so much. Not a lot of range there, but Color of Money, which we did. Yeah, but there even is. in Days of Thunder, there's still moments that he brings a lot of depth to the character. Right, okay. A yeah. little subtlety to it. Like I said off the top, his manic energy that he brings to a lot of these roles, and I think years after 96, maybe we found out a little bit more about Cruz. Yeah, we didn't know this stuff then, that's true. But you see that manic energy that I think he just has as a person displayed in public as Tom Cruise versus in his roles. In roles like this, it kind of works because as an agent, he's supposed to be that kind of high energy, smarming, constantly schmoozing, fast talking kind of guy. It suits. And even if it looks like he's trying really hard, well, his character is supposed to be trying really hard the entire time. That's a fair point. It's again the situation, Bev and I talked about this on Django Unchained, where Samuel L. Jackson is acting, not the actor, but the character. That's has right. to be an actor. Well, that's true about a sports agent. You're right. That's exactly we what We see he's doing. part of the montage early on when somebody's been hurt, or actually arrested, I should say, and he says, the only real fact we know is this guy is a fantastic athlete. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't really feel that way. There's probably part of him thinks, was it a rape or the guy, whatever the guy did. Jerry's a smart guy. He probably realizes he may very well have done this. But even if he didn't do it, the issue is not his athleticism. He's being taken into the jail, but that's him performing right there. And then with the kid who shames him, which is why he writes his mission statement or slash memo that Dorothy always calls it. The kid gives him the bird because (laughs) he has to pretend for that guy too. Yeah, yeah, you're going to be fine, whatever that hockey player's name is, who must be from either Minnesota or Canada because he definitely has that kind of accent. The only moment in this movie where I felt the least bit emotional, and as much as I enjoyed it from top to bottom, was the scene at the end where Rod is celebrating amongst the reporters and Regina King comes out and it's the whole we did it baby moment. 
the way they played off each other through this yeah, movie. They're a great couple. They're a great couple. They're both great actors individually. Mm. She's but really showing it now. She won the Oscar earlier this year for a movie last year. And she's if in the Beale Watchmen. Street could talk. She's been great in the Watchmen. Fantastic at that. And she looks the same. It's crazy. Twenty three yeah. years yeah. later, she looks the same. She's the reason I think why the big scene in the football game gets me so much. She yeah, is I so get that. Over the phone with Jerry. You mean yeah, we've she, seen so many scenes yeah. like that where somebody's in the scene. The wife or the girlfriend, maybe sometimes the boyfriend or the husband, is literally there. But she's on a phone, and not even with the guy she cares about. She's on the phone with his agent. Yeah. And it's such a different way of doing it. Cruz is good in that. Gooding's good in that. But she's the best part of that whole scene. And why I think she did a spectacular job in this movie, and I think, frankly, overshadows Renee Zellweger. Renee's good. I think also very good, yeah. Aside from the scenes where Regina King and Cuba Gooding are playing off each other as husband and wife, and I think far overshadowing the way Cruz and Zellweger act together as actors, not like their characters, but as actors. Throughout the movie, she's pushing Cruz, right? She wants her husband to get a big contract. Marcy is, yeah. The scene where he gets offered the $1.8 million over three years, and she says, we owe more than that? Mm. Damn it, Tidwells. Exercise a little bit of financial restraint. Yeah. You owe more than $1.8 million? I get you're not rich, but come They're on. You're not living in a mansion either. No, I mean, what are you spending it on? Yeah. But on I mean, his brothers. Probably, yeah. <laughs> TP but, and the one we don't see, the one who lost his leg in a tragic... Bass in a tragic fishing accident. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> that was played so straight. <laughs> Good for you to get that line out straight. <laughs> But throughout the movie, she's pushing for money, for money, for money. And she could so easily come across as just like a gold digging type of wife yeah. character, stereotype. No, she's a team with this guy. She's a team. The pinnacle of that is that phone conversation with Jerry where she says, our family is a team that doesn't work without him or something like mm -hmm. that. And does it with such great emotion. That line depth. really got me. I think that that line got me a little yeah. bit. Those two got me a little bit emotionally, and kudos to the both of them, because they acted the shit out of this movie. They're a great family. You see a little bit with the kid, too. In the big show-me-the-money the money scene, again, on the phone. The first time we meet Rod, he's on the phone with Jerry, and when he's doing the whole show-me-the-money thing, which is the line that people know the best, I guess, from this movie, the kid is just finishing up breakfast or something like that, or maybe it's lunch, whatever, and then you see, in the middle of the conversation, Rod takes him by the head... Is up to say, take your plate and bust your table. But he's not saying it. But he's being a good dad in that moment, too. Yeah. This is a wonderful family. Even the brother, who's also a dick to the movie. You know he gets nervous for Monday Night Football. But then when Rod's down and they show all these people, especially Marcy, in that big family scene. A lot of people are at their house watching the game. You show Teepee, who's, okay, okay, he's fine. So even he, actually, in the end, is loyal to his brother. He's also a fun part of the show me the money scene behind holding the football when it's, yeah. show me the money. And that <laughs> moment, I can't do it in the podcast, of course, but I love when he's holding the football and does that, hey, as his arms go back in the air. Show me. And he's doing the thing with the football, arm pumping. I did love one of the conversations. I think it was the next one that Tidwell had with Jerry on the phone. And he walks into his brother's room. His feet are just... That's the same conversion. Is it the same conversation? Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it precedes. Then he follows him down to the kitchen. Yeah. And then he walks in, squelch, squelch, squelch. <laughs> TV's room is flooded, man. It's flooded. You know, his brother's just kicking back there, totally yeah. unperturbed by the fact yeah. that it sounds like there's three inches of water in his carpet. <laughs> and ants all over and the wall. And ants all over the wall. He's just like, yeah, it's cool. Oh, yeah. he's the mood. She doesn't really care, I guess, in the end. I think I know where that $2 million went. All right, let me do all the bona fides in this movie, and we'll get back to the main conversation. There's a lot. This might be the most we've ever had to cover. So Rotten Tomatoes, 83% of critics like the movie, 7.6 out of 10, and 79% of audiences. As I said, it was ninth at the 1996 U.S. box office. It won the Oscar for Cuba Gooding Jr. as Best Supporting Actor, and I think that was a pretty good choice. The rare at that time, black person had won any kind of Oscar, and almost all of them were supporting, whether it be women or men. And Bev and I have talked about this a lot in the last couple of years. It's happened way more often, especially supporting actress winners, yeah. including Regina King this very year. Jerry Maguire was also nominated for Best Picture, 
Best Actor for Cruise, the original screenplay by Crow and the editing. Crow won for his screenplay for Almost Famous. Cruise has never won even now. And then Best Picture. This is the year when, apart from Jerry Maguire, all the other nominees for Best Picture, the other four, were independent movies that people had heard of. English Patient won, and it was well-known. It did pretty well at the box office, but Fargo was in that group. This was the only blockbuster. We've seen years where all the nominees, or most of them, are big hits. This was the year where almost none were. And Cruz did win the Golden Globe. I watched his speech. The award was presented by Kelly Preston's husband, John Travolta. Just coincidentally happened to present the really? award to him. And Cruz, as always, you expect from Cruz. Very gracious and everything. Mentions everybody that matters. The actors and his agents and, of course, Cameron Crowe. This movie was also 100th on the Top 100 Passions. I can buy that. Good love story. I actually could think it'd be higher than that. It is a rom-com and does that well. Hmm, okay. You Had Me at Hello was 52nd on the Top 100 Quotes. Show Me the Money was 25th. And then You Complete Me was a nominee for the quotes list. It was 10th on the top 100 genres in the sports category, which is one of the reasons we're covering it. Raging Bull, not one of your favorites, was number one. Nope. And it was nominated for so many others. The 1998 and 2007 top 100 lists, so the main ones that Bev and I did years ago, nominated for those. The top 100 laughs, the top 100 cheers, the rom-com category of the top 100 genres, and Secret Garden for top 100 songs. <sighs> Take a <laughs> breath now. <laughs> This might be the most nominated movie we've done. I think it is. Full stop. It's got to right? be. Field of Dreams had a bunch of nominees and made some lists, but this has got to be even it more. It didn't cross genres, though, as far as lists goes, quite the same way this no, one no. did. Have you ever sat naked at your kitchen table to eat fruit? If I looked like those two, I probably would more often. <laughs> Just be naked all the time. I like the way that they're framed, because you never see Kelly Preston's naughty bits, and you certainly don't see Cruz's. They're framed in such a way, and the lighting is such that you can't see anything. No, that's true. They had just gone through some really athletic sex in their yeah, living room. They just fucked. Yeah. yeah. But athletically, he was holding her up. and True. He's so, in good shape. He's an athlete in his own right, I guess. So you got to believe there's some sweat involved here, and they just decide to sit naked on their kitchen chairs. Did they put some towels down or something? They're not done yet. They're going to go back in there and do some more. Okay, so there's towels on the chairs, though, right? Because you don't want to sweat all over those things. Sweat? <laughs> Bigger I, problems I'm, than I'm sweat. Trying, I'm trying to be couth <laughs> to a degree here. Put some underwear on, Mr. Cruz. That's all I can say. You're hung up on the sex part. I'm hung up on the fact they have a beautiful white dog who's watching. That, that was voyeuristic. Because when it's the, whoever snagged him must be some classy babe. And you cut to, never, ever stop fucking me. <laughs> but the image is the dog watching them. The way the dog crooks its head to the side. <laughs> oh, that's a good move. I guess Avery got the dog because he doesn't have that dog later on. No, it must be her dog. Although we don't see where he ended up moving to. We see his office. And incidentally, if you have to go somewhere else, we talked about this on Blue Chips where Nick Nolte is paying for the house where his wife lives, oh, ex-wife, yeah. I guess, lives, Mary McDonald. Beautiful but where house. he lives on the beach, not too bad if you can't live with your wife in this great, or your ex-wife in this great house. Same with Jerry. If he's going to be a loser, loses all of his clients, and for some reason goes broke so fast, didn't put any money in the bank, I guess, his office is on the beach. looks pretty nice. Maybe that's where he lives, too. I don't think the movie makes it clear that he lives there. Based on the number of calls he was trying to make and all mm -hmm. that, he must have had a pretty lengthy client list of professional football players, hockey players, you would think he would be making a fair bit of money. I had to look this up because I wondered, what does an average sports agent make? And I think the average in California was something like $90,000. That's it? Well, yeah, but I mean, think of how many... Oh, commissions, though. Commissions. No, I think that... Maybe their base salary is 90000 I think that includes commissions on average. Really? That's all they make? Well, but... You... Scott Boros makes that in a minute. Well, Scott Boros, I think, made $100 million last year or thereabouts. But he's the super agent, right? He's yeah. Lee Steinberg, I guess. Yeah. I don't know if that guy, by the way, Lee Steinberg's still an agent now, but he was 23 years ago. And you see the pit in this movie, right? Like, you see all the junior agents running around and all that kind of stuff. 
if that's what they're making, and you are the guy that, as Cruz said, helped build the agency. I'm sorry, but it's a fact! Yeah, and you've got this laundry list of star players that you're representing. I'm sure you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're not that $90,000 guy. You're way up there. Like you said, you haven't put virtually any money away. Within weeks, you're on the verge of bankruptcy, even though you have to pay for your secretary or your assistant, whatever Renee's role is meant to be in this new business. He goes from flying high to nearly destitute so fast. And you can't say it's over the course of years, and Rod stuck with him for years, because the kid, Tyson, doesn't really grow up. Well, Regina's pregnant, right? Yeah, she has the kid, and the kid is... Over the course of months. The baby's only been born at the very end of the movie, so yes, this isn't supposed to be over the course of even a year, let alone years. Maybe Cruz just spent all of his money on those bitchin' 90s suits... That are did, was so baggy. Dressed pretty well. True. He was so dressed baggy. pretty well otherwise as far as it being classy. But yeah, I guess they were baggy too, weren't they? When he starts off in the movie, he's wearing those obnoxious 90s agent suits, right? And as the movie progresses, he sheds that kind of look. Yeah. Like at one point, he has only a sport coat and he tells Rod... Just he's take, cloaked in failure. He's cloaked in failure. Take the coat. I don't need it. And then by the end of the movie, all he's wearing is like a sweater. A like, very casual outfit, though. Very ca- He's progressed from corporate agent dude yeah. to every man throughout the course of the movie, just getting mm-hmm. more and more casual as his view on life and priorities yeah. shift sure. from corporate America. Although, do you notice that when he writes the mission statement in the middle of the night, which is the very beginning of the film, before yeah. things have gone to hell for him, he's wearing the rattiest t-shirt I've ever seen a major star wear in a movie yeah. like this, where he's supposed to be a pretty wealthy guy. Yeah, it's pretty ratty. He got that mission statement mass-produced and bound remarkably quickly that mm-hmm. morning, too. Mm-hmm. Another <laughs> fantasy element. This movie might be a great fantasy. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> Since you referenced the beginning of the movie, he walks in for this... Was it a bachelor party or was it a congratulations party? It's a bachelor party. It's a bachelor party, right? And incidentally, he goes to work the very next day. So that means he had a bachelor party on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Sunday or a Thursday. Or An odd choice, like right? Why not do it on a Friday or a Saturday like the rest of us would do? Yeah. Because the day he gets fired is clearly the day after the bachelor party. He walks in very hungover and somebody even acknowledges, oh, great bachelor party last night, Jerry. Yeah. Maybe it's just supposed to be implying that the only friends he has are his work colleagues. Air quotes friends, I suppose. When we talked about one moment already, this movie kept bringing back for me Simpsons flashbacks. And one of the aspects of the movie is, of course, which I thought was a great little thing, the video that all the prior girlfriends were giving interviews for. and Pretty good terms with all those people because nobody says, oh, I hated that motherfucker. Yeah. Well, I the... wish she was dead. Yeah. <laughs> What's the clip of somebody talking? It's an old 1970s sports yeah. clip. They're talking about... I think it's supposed to be Kelly Preston. It's like Jerry Maguire. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very, like, Camp Krusty Mr. Black. Yeah, Here's right. my good yeah. friend, Mr. Black. Bad dubbing over mm-hmm. the video. And then followed by all the girlfriends. Followed by the burning of the little black mm-hmm. book. And I freaking love the image that, like you said, A, he's still on good terms with all of these women that he's had relationships over the years. Even though he apparently pissed them off to a certain degree because when they can't be alone you can't be alone and when they say they are slamming them but they're polite about it (laughs) i love you jerry his response is double air guns hey baby i love you too considering how sincere he becomes in this movie i don't see him being that much of a dick when his guard should be down with these people he's supposed to be romantically involved with yeah i wonder if they should have done a little bit more to set him up as the smarmy agent type in the way that jay moore you see jay moore calling his clients to steal them away once jerry's been fired and you really get the smarmy agent vibe he gets on the phone like hey martinez how's it going hey how's your contract is your mom okay great let's talk about your representation you get the i don't give a shit vibe off of jay moore i just want your dollars 
you never really get that from Tom Cruise. Even when he's supposed to be the high-flying agent at the beginning of the movie, mm. you get the charming, schmoozing, Well, the hockey player is the one. The hockey player in the hospital is the one who says, i got to play on Sunday, wherever the day is, to get my bonus. It's not Jerry who's saying, yeah. well, get healthy and play, don't get that bonus. It's the player saying it. And yeah, yeah, the kid guilts Jerry, but the guy wants to do it. And as the kid says, somebody should stop him. The future Jerry, when he gets a client like that, will take care of him in health and in sickness, as he says in his mission statement. But at that point, he doesn't. But the player is responsible for this, too, because that's his mentality. We've yeah. talked about in our podcast, though. Athletes want to do this. When people say, oh, they're all in it for the money, some of them surely are. But they are obsessed with this thing from when they were little kids. That's something that's a bit of a scene in the movie, too, between Cruz and Gooding when they're in their bathroom, I guess it is. That big, long scene. They end up in the locker room, the bathroom, all that. Cuba's. Before, it was just about the money, because Cuba's not just about the money. Rod Table's not just about that. He's he all heart, baby. Yeah. He doesn't show that to his teammates. He doesn't show that to the audience when he's playing games. And yes, he should be dancing. I'm not going to dance, but you are a performer. That's something I think we've touched on periodically, and it always bugs me in reality I'm an athlete, and I don't have to speak to the media. I'm like, well, you yes, are you do. That's you're your an job. athlete, but yeah. you're also an employee of this team, and mm -hmm. part of the team's responsibility is public relations, so yes. they can sell tickets. Mm -hmm. So that makes your responsibility to the team to do that. That's one of the reasons why you make so much money. Exactly. So nobody's going to like it, but we all have things to do in our jobs that we yeah. don't necessarily like. And they're boring as hell, almost always. But we have to do them, mm -hmm. and you have to play ball to a certain degree. I'm not going to dance. It's in your own best interest. The reason you're not going to get paid is because you're, quite honestly, an asshole, and you see that scene in the locker room after the first game of the season when Tidwell's had a great game and nobody comes to speak to him. Mm -hmm. I would have liked to have seen Tidwell give like a really dickish interview to a reporter because I don't think we actually really see that. No. We see him get talked about behind his back about what a standoffish guy he is. And towards the end of the movie, when he's doing his dance and his celebration, you hear the announcer say, he's been standoffish, he's been... Al Michaels again. We just talked about him Was on Al Michaels? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Al Michaels, Dan Deardorff, and... Frank I, I should have recognized that. What's his name again? I forget. Frank Gifford. That's it. They were the main guys on Monday Night Football back in this era on That's ABC. Right. Yeah, so they're talking about how standoffish he is and how difficult he's been with the media, but we never see that once in the movie. We see him get stood up by the media. But he would like to talk to them, but nobody wants to. Exactly. So I'm like, uh, I wish I had just seen him be a little bit more of a dick to this his movie's teammates. more flawed than I thought it was. They want to show you and not tell you, and maybe it's just to save time, because as it is, this movie's over two hours long, I think, so it's yeah, not it's like two, a short movie. 15 or something like that. It's, Even though it moves, it yeah, doesn't not feel slow. long at all. That's true. No, it's not slow. I had to pause in the middle because I had to make dinner. Did you do so naked? I was very clothed. I might have been naked <laughs> if it was July. Just don't do any frying. Definitely not that. It's dangerous. When I watched Seabiscuit, I remember you came over right when it was ending. That was back in the summer. And I was clothed, but I could have been naked because goddamn was it hot at that point. <laughs> it was deadly hot that week. And not just because you'd just been watching the sex scene with Kelly Preston and Tom Cruise. <laughs> it was actually physically hot. Well, let's talk about that. Is this movie one you can score at? Tom Cruise is a hunk, man. He's Ray very cute. Kelly Preston's a babe. Cuba and Marcy are good looking people. The vibe, though, is more about love and romance than it, it is. is yeah. That one sex scene could be hot, by the way it's played. It's just funny, partly because of the classy babe cut to, and she's not being classy. Oh, yeah, it's played for humor as much as anything. And the scene where Jerry's undressing Renee Zellweger on her front stoop. Yeah. It would have been really fun to have a police car pull up and just say, Sir, cut that out. You get that inside. It's indecent. Or a good Christian focus. Show me the Dorothy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Show me the Dorothy. This is like a very staid, conservative movie from yeah. that aspect of things. And it is all about romance. 100% a scorable movie. Now, the one thing, I said this as a movie of its time. The yeah. mid-90s vibe comes across strong. And for the most part, some of it is kind of chuckle cute in retrospect. The laptops of 1996 with the 8-inch screen that weigh 100 pounds. 
Or the fashion. Or the, the dollar value for a player. But the movie still holds up. The one thing that I could not really abide about this movie that was also of the 90s. The Chris could not abide. Chris, yeah. <laughs> the dude did not abide, right? <laughs> what the hell was that ladies support group thing? The Bonnie Tyler... Bonnie Hunt, yeah. Bonnie Hunt, sorry. We have to talk about her, because she, I think, steals this movie. She's a great performance. She's funny, and she's heartfelt. She's outstanding. I always liked her, but I think she and Regina King more than I ever realized before. And this is such a good cast, but I think they might be the two best things in the whole movie. They might be. Well, what was the group about? Comedy, I guess. Well, Crow's mom is the older woman in that group. Alice Crow is playing the one who got in touch with my anger. Yay, Alice! So maybe she actually did that in reality, and Cameron was just putting her in the movie, doing something she'd done before. It just felt like something that in 2019 you look at and you're like, eh, it just doesn't feel right somehow that you've got a bunch of women who have been cast aside and can't really... You don't think that people do that? Men are women? They might. And maybe it's just 2019 me being a little overly sensitive. It rang kind of needlessly obnoxious in okay. a lot of ways. My suspicion is that they wanted it strictly so that at the very end of it all, yes. Tom Cruise can kick in the door and say, where's my wife? And do the whole speech. And just how sensitive I am, I, I would do this in front of strangers. All the women who have been ranting about how much they are hate men. Are all in tears. Are all yeah. in tears. Going, oh, you have to take him back. He's a beautiful and handsome human being. Let me tell a story I just heard about recently because there's some trivia about it. And I'd never heard this before, so I had to look it up on YouTube. Patton Oswalt, and I won't go into the whole story, but he talks about how he saw this movie with his brother back in 1996. And he says that when Cruise says in that speech, which I like generally... Yeah. I think that he's wrong to not like the speech if the brother doesn't. Second beer for Chris. Go ahead, pop it open. Thank you. And there it is. Okay. Cruz says something like, we live in a cynical world. A cynical world. The brother apparently said, fuck you. Really? <laughs> out loud. Yeah, I was about to say, that's enough. That's stupid. I agree that that's a bad line. The way Patton Oswalt did that was a lot funnier, by the way, than I just did, I guess. It's a really funny little clip. You should look for it. See, I'll probably link it on the website. But it's a good speech that's marred a little bit. Because Cameron Crowe is a great writer, but he's like Kevin Smith, even Tarantino sometimes, David Mamet's another one, where as good as the writing is, they also make it sound sometimes like it's writing. Yeah. Marriage Story is a movie that's out right now. It's on Netflix. I think it's in theaters. I just heard a podcast about it. I liked it a lot. I like it more in retrospect. you got to see it. Marriage Story, really good film. But it feels surreal. And Jerry Maguire, like we said probably three times, has fantasy elements. And the way that Jerry speaks in that whole thing about cynical world, a cynical world... I agree with that brother to a degree, Patton Oswalt's bro. But when she says you had me at hello, apparently Renee Zellweger didn't get that line. And she said to Cameron Crowe before they started making the movie, I don't get what that means. I think she doesn't understand. The point is that he walks in, just like when he first went into their place when he was drunk, and he meets Ray, and they have such chemistry as well, the kid, Jonathan Lipnicki. But he says hello. And definitely when he comes to the very end of the movie, though, the first thing he says, they're all rabble, 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 the women. Yeah. He says, hello, hello, I'm looking for my wife. And because Renee Zellweger had done a fairly believable thing where she drops up on the floor and it bent down, he couldn't see that she was in the room, too. He thinks she's somewhere else in the house. So that's why she says, you had me at hello. He actually literally had just said it. So the point is, when you walked in, that's enough for me. Partly because she's been obsessed with him. She says she watched his bachelor party video. She knows it by heart. Why would she watch that video over and over again to know it by heart? She knows the mission yeah. statement by heart. She's already in love with him before she even really gets to know him. And I do like the moment when they first, I guess, officially meet in the airport when Ray is messing around on the turnstile. Yes. Jerry, even at that point, when he hasn't really lost everything, he hasn't lost anything at that point yet, right away, I barely know this woman. Maybe I can help her. Not a lot of people would do that. Jerry always comes across as a better human being than his agent compatriots. Right from the get-go, he's a better person, a nicer person. Kelly Preston's saying, if you want me to be with other women, I will. And he just looks uncomfortable and says, no, no, thank you. If they wanted him to be a soulless, emotionally detached, debauched 
agent, not irredeemable because he's redeemed, but you know what I mean. Then he could have said, yeah, we'll do that next weekend. We'll find a random receptionist. They could have done a lot of things to make him sound like a bad human being. But like you said, right from the get-go, he's a nice guy working in what's portrayed as an amoral industry very successfully. So it's implied that he does things that are amoral, but you never really see it. As far as the speech at the end goes, though, I think you're right. That does come across as not something a human being would actually say to another human being. The cynical world thing. The cynical world thing. But the way that Renee Zellweger and Tom Cruise interact throughout the movie just never really clicked 100% for me. So even in that moment, okay. it just felt similarly disconnected to me. I'd forgotten, I've seen this movie so many times, that he does say more than once, I love you. I don't think he does earlier on. I don't think he says before they get married or after they've gotten married. There's that really real moment where she says, why do you love me? Why do you love me? Or I think he says it first, and then she's yeah. right back to him. That's a moment that people probably shouldn't have in their own marriages unless they know what the answer is, because that could be a bad scene. But then Ray interrupts it. But here's something that you may not have thought of. I didn't until I heard the commentary in this movie, and it's a very key moment. What's that? Cameron Crowe has talked about in the past where he loves The Apartment, the Billy Wilder film. Okay. We have a sidebar, the guy who plays Dickie Fox, Jared Jussum. Yep. They wanted, Cruz and Crowe wanted that to be Billy Wilder. He's not an actor, he's a director, and he's got a thick Austrian accent. They got lucky casting Jared Jussum instead. But okay, he loves The Apartment by Billy Wilder. And the arc in Almost Famous is similar to that. But the comparison in this movie is that at the end of that, Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine they're probably not going to end up together. It's a nice, sweet ending, and she's saying, shut up and deal. I don't want to hear bullshit from men anymore, which is the point of the end of that movie. It's a love story that ends in a great way, but they're probably not going to end up together long term. I've said that about Rear Window as well, a Hitchcock film. Okay, this is a love story, right? You have me at hello, they kiss, I love you, all that stuff. Right. But who's holding hands in the very last scene as the three of them are walking off? The kids between them. And right. Cameron Crowe points out in the commentary that even at that moment when it's this beautiful ending, the sun is setting and the kid's got baseball talent maybe by throwing the ball unrealistically further. The kid threw the ball <laughs> terrible form maybe four that, feet and it's supposed to have gone about 60 feet or maybe even 200 feet. <laughs> Do you see the way he full arm extension off to the side behind yeah. his back and then whoop. That ball didn't go anywhere. He looked like a Muppet. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But who's holding hands? The married couple who's supposedly in love has got the kid between them. And that was a very deliberate choice by... And it makes sense. It's also just a cinematic theme. But the two... Well, they're not very tall. But the two grown-ups, the taller people with the little guy between them. But he's the link with them. Yeah. And that's clear before because when they break up, he says, what about Ray? We'll be friends. He even says to Rod earlier, the kid's amazing. It's almost yeah. like, I'd rather be with you for the kid. Cameron Crowe's even saying about his wonderful rom-com, one of the more beloved romantic comedies of all time, this couple may not last even after all of those proclamations. So that final scene was an intentional choice on Cameron Crowe's part yep. to frame it that, that way. That he still doesn't really truly love her. He's trying to be responsible. He's trying his best. He's cruising, I'm going to love her, I swear I will. And she is 100% madly in love with him, and maybe even more now. Well, I think but she can't love enough for two people. I got the impression from the you complete me scene. He realized at that point after witnessing Rod and Marcy, he realized what was missing in his life and what he wanted. That was what Dorothy could bring to his life. When the phone rings and it's Marcy, he thinks it's Dorothy. Why would Dorothy be calling him? That's his first thought. That's a nice moment, but I don't know if this is the woman for him. It might not be. I always took it that... And I always thought the fact that they had that breakup moment earlier in the movie was to imply this as well. Is that when he makes that realization that, okay, this is actually what I want, and she can help me achieve that, but that it's not necessarily about Dorothy specifically. It's about him recognizing what he has been missing to this point and what he wants. He wants to shoplift the pooty. Yeah, he wants to shoplift the pooty on a permanent basis. But the... <laughs> He wants to take home the shoplifted pooty. Yes. <laughs> he wants to legitimately pay for and purchase it okay. in a legal way. 
She just happens to be the woman with whom he's in a relationship right now. And the fact that he has that deep connection with the kid, Ray, is just that added incentive for him. I didn't make that connection to the final shot. In the I didn't either until I heard him say it in the commentary. Yeah, but it makes perfect sense when you say I it. I don't mean to rain on anyone's parade who loves this movie and loves the love story in it. But it's not final, right? Like you said yeah. yourself, they may not. Because stories, Robert Altman said this, don't end. They just stop. Yeah, exactly. We stop here. This is where this movie ends. But people go on, especially the movies continue. that he made. Yeah. And maybe the movies that Crow has made too, because these relationships that end in the way they do don't necessarily end up working out long term. This couple could still end up getting divorced, probably not acrimoniously. When they break up the first time, he's crying and she's very upset. But he's, by the way, got a huge day ahead of him because he's talking about, I'll be in Monday I'll Night be. Football, which is the game. And the next day he's going to Indiana. Indiana for so that 24-hour period, he goes to a different state to watch the game where Rod gets hurt, but then Rod ends up being fine. And Jerry's got to be thinking, okay, he looks like he's okay right now, but what are the long-term repercussions on this guy? Thank God he gets that contract. I guess in the offseason, probably. I don't think he would have gotten in the playoffs, probably, and the playoffs were coming up soon. That was Christmas Day, after all. So then he goes to the game. He rushes home to L.A. to see Dorothy. They have their moment. They probably have sex that night. And then he goes they to Indiana. Sex. He's exhausted, passes out immediately. <laughs> goes to Indiana the next morning. Yeah. Big day for Jerry. His eyes are bloodshot, no doubt, and he's exhausted. It's hard to apply realism to this movie, necessarily. We're really learning that, aren't we? Yeah, but nonetheless, I like the acknowledgement of the fact that you can't necessarily wrap up somebody's life in a tidy bow at the end of all these dramatic events. And just because Jerry Maguire has had a bit of realization about the way he's been living his life and what he might want out of it, you do not necessarily turn on a dime, right? I ragged on the women's group as a notion within the movie earlier on, but one of the conversations they've had, I think it's before he arrives in the final scene, their final scene, that is, when they're talking about how people don't really change and neural pathways, which is legitimate. We as human That's beings... That's the theme in Mad Men. Yeah, we build neural pathways. You can change. You can build yeah. new ones and change your habits, but it's not easy. And it's actually physically and mentally exhausting to do it over time. And way more often people don't change. Exactly. Not because, in major ways, not in important ways. No, maybe not. And this is something you learn about with change management at work, is that people can do a job, and you can change the way they do that job to actually make it easier for them. But because that is a change to the routine that they've known for so long, it can actually be more tiring for them, at least okay. for a period of time, yeah. okay. because you have to rebuild that sort of neural pathway that you've developed. So the fact that they had that conversation, and then, of course, there's the reconciliation with Jerry and Dorothy, and you go to the end of the movie, in keeping with the whole people don't change theme of that conversation with the ladies group, I got to believe that's intentional, too. That dialogue yeah. is inserted just for that purpose it would make perfect sense that jerry despite his best intentions even if he wants to stop being a philandering self-obsessed corporate agent he guy, has stopped doing those things for now right but i think that's a whole implication what you were talking about with cameron crowe's commentary on that final scene with him ray and dorothy he's making an effort whether or not it's meant to be long term he's making the effort right now but maybe people don't easily change for the long term. He can do this for a little while. We saw him do it for a little while earlier in the movie, and he's making a concerted effort to do it at the end of the movie. But there's every possibility that six months from now, a year from now, two years from now, his character comes to the realization that maybe this is still something I want, but this is not the relationship for that. And as much as I care about these two people, I need something different. I think it's very possible. We talked about how this is on the passions list. And yeah. at the end of that, I think it's Gina Davis who plays the host, and they give him terrible lines in those AFI shows, by the way. But she says something like, and they lived happily ever after. Well, not always. 
And that is so not true to imply that they do in most great romantic movies anyway, because I think the top six on that list, all or most of them, end up tragically. West Side Story, of course, both yeah. people die. Casablanca, they're in love, but they don't end up together. And then this movie on this list, like we just said, these two don't really belong together. She's trying so hard to make it work. And he is now, but yeah, I think we're agreeing on this one. Yeah. Although, one of the great lines in this movie, too, so many outstanding quotes, is when Bonnie Hunt, after the wedding, offers a toast, a beer to Jerry. It's also interesting to see Tom Cruise drinking a beer because he does not drink in reality. But anyway. <laughs> that body fat percentage is so low. And he gets drunk in the movie. The character does, of course. But anyway, she offers the beer. They tap it. Yeah, all right, cool. I accept you kind of moment. But she says, you fuck this up, I'll kill you. Yeah. <laughs> love that line so much. Good talk. What she I, steals the film. I love how much of a mom Bonnie Tyler is in this movie. Even Bonnie Hunt. Bonnie Tyler. Why do I keep calling movie? her Bonnie Tyler? Sorry, Bonnie Hunt. I know this is going to be a problem for me. Laurel is her name, the character. Yeah. She doesn't have any children herself. Ray is the only child in that house. Mm -hmm. And throughout the movie, she's acting as the mother hen to Dorothy. Yeah. Very motherly. That's all I'm going to say. She says that about 20 times. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. And one of my favorite moments of her character throughout the movie is when Tom Cruise shows up at the house, I think the first time, and... Dorothy starts freaking out, and I'm going to get you a drink and chicken on the yeah. shirt. Bonnie Hunt does not panic. Just, okay, lean forward, chicken on the plate. Still edible. Still edible. <laughs> go change your shirt, and we're good to go. Unfazed, because it's happened to her a million times. Yeah. And maybe it's because she's a waitress. She sees this kind of thing at mm. work all the time, but it's just so calm, cool, and collected while Dorothy's freaking out because her boss slash love obsession is in her living room mm -hmm. right then, right? And so. at that same moment, Ray is having that conversation with Jerry in the other room, which apparently was largely improvised between the two of them. Maybe that's one reason why Jonathan Lipnicki keeps trying to talk about the zoo and his dad, and Jerry's trying to talk about his dad. Oh, really? That was an improvised that's what I was reading, forth? yeah. Lipnicki steals the movie, too. Well, so many people steal this movie. Of course, the human head weighs eight pounds thing. I guess that was something he was just saying one day, so Crow put in the screenplay. I can't top that. Well, I think he can't top, actually. Jerry can't top would be you know my next-door neighbor has three rabbits? <laughs> <laughs> whether or not it was written or whether it was just stuff that the kid happened to be saying and Crow put in the movie, it is exactly what a five- or six-year-old kid would be saying to an adult because they think it's super interesting. And the way that Jerry's character responds is also really great because it would mean absolutely nothing to the kid, but the kid's just happy to have a back mm -hmm. and forth. My neighbor has three... That's the last thing he says. But you know, mm -hmm. were he to say, my neighbor has three rabbits, and Jerry responds with, well, did you know that Pete Rose has 4,300 right. and saw him hits and isn't in the Hall of Fame? And the kid loves it. No idea what the Hall of Fame is. No idea what a hit is. No do you know dogs and bees can smell fear? <laughs> <laughs> I can pull half the movie for you if you want. <laughs> I'm just going to start saying that to strangers. Did you know that dogs and bees can smell fear? My head weighs eight pounds. <laughs> well, my head might weigh more. It's I been was, a large That was going to be the intro for you, is your head weighs a lot more than eight pounds. <laughs> Apparently all heads weigh more than eight pounds anyway according to what I was reading but oh, yours you certainly go. does screw you Jonathan Lipnicki you misled <laughs> us this is why I failed grade 8 biology because of this stupid movie he didn't have that much of a career for this movie by the way which is a little bit of a surprise because he's so great in this he was in the Stuart Little films as the mouse's brother but he's still acting though right like, Lipnicki well let us see Maybe on a relatively small scale relative to people you're right he's still in movies yeah nothing really big here but I don't recognize any of these titles, but yeah, you're talking the last few years. Plenty of things in 2017. So yes, he is still acting. He is now almost 30, wow, almost 30 years old. He was born in 1990. It's hard to believe that this movie is 23 years old now. Although at the same time, I guess it's not because we've talked about, or I've ranted on about how much of a movie of the yeah. 90s. Sure. 
some fantastic agent hair early in the movie, some great 90s mullets, the yeah. swooped back, sure. gelled top of the head, and the flowing mane at the back. You know, it also, at the time, felt dated in a way, was Stand By Me, which is a great film, but it was 10 years before. And the star player that Jerry thinks he's got signed, Jerry O'Connell, who was yep. not fat, fat. He was the fat friend, basically, of the four of them in Stand By Me. And the funniest, he's so funny in that movie. But here he is, this grown-up, handsome believable athlete guy as Frank Cushman. This Kush. And it's been 10 years, granted, and he had done other things. I think Sliders might have been before Jerry Maguire. It was around the same time anyway. Yeah. And I don't know if I even recognized him or if I did, I thought, oh my God, look at him. He's a super hunk now. What was that terrible TV show with the aerosol cans and stuff that he was into as a teenager? Canadian TV show. Edison Twins? Is that him? Not Edison Twins. Here come the Edison Twins. I don't know what that is. Everyday Hero or something like that? My Secret Identity. My Secret Identity, that's the one. He worked pretty consistently his whole life. I was always surprised that Jerry O'Connell never really made it as a leading man in movies. He has a sense of humor, too. He was recently on an episode of podcast, Doug Loves Movies. He's one of the many people on a big show that Doug did. He seems like he's got a sense of humor and a decent guy, and he's certainly good-looking. The roles that you see him in, whether it's television or movies, he has run the gamut of nice guy, good guy, smarmy, asshole. Yeah, a bit of a Chris Pratt vibe, except he never quite found the niche that Chris Pratt found that got him famous, I guess. Now, what about the storyline with the Cushmans? Because... Didn't care. The du- Okay, fair. But, okay, the point is, the dude's brother, Bo Bridges, plays... Yeah. What's his name again? Elder Cushman. Anyway, he's the, the father. The man whose handshake is his bond. Frank Cushman. No, that's the name of the quarterback. Anyway, yeah, exactly, that's my point. So, you know I don't do contracts, but you have my word. I'm not stronger than oak. Jerry is the super successful agent who's been doing this for a long time. Why would you walk out of that house without a contract signed? Just because the guy says that you have my word, you are smarter than that. And then you know one thing that's very important, actually, the deleted scene in this? I saw this deleted scene a long time ago, so I may be remembering it a little bit wrong. And incidentally, we took a break a minute ago. We actually looked up the part of, the thing with the hand means the money. And that's not the exact quote, but that'll be the quote for us. We failed miserably. We'll link to that, too, and people can see the quote for themselves in The Simpsons. But in the deleted scene, when they all fly to the draft and Rod goes too, Rod and Frank Cushman start fighting a little bit. So when his father says, you're in the lobby with a black fella, there's a racial element to that. And maybe people picked up on what's in the movie. The deleted scene points out that I don't think they had a fight about race, but it was almost this whole sort of, know your place, man, even though this is the veteran player and you think Cushman would have a little bit more reverence. But I think that's one of the reasons why... Mr. Cushman does decide to sign with Bob Sugar instead of Jerry because of that. You're going to represent that guy. I won't use the word, but you know what I'm thinking of? That's probably part of it because he says, we signed an hour ago. You were in the lobby with the black fellow. I took it that there was racial undertones to that comment as well. Whether or not it was strictly because Jerry was representing a non-white athlete or because Jerry was focusing his attention on a non-white athlete when Frank Cushman arrives and he doesn't immediately kick the other guy to the curb to go fawn attention over Jerry O'Connell's character. He does though. He does do that. He doesn't just like stay with him forever after right, right? Okay. because if he did then of course Jay Moore wouldn't be able to sign the contract with right. him. To what degree was there racism in the decision to sign this contract with Jay Moore? I don't know. There was clearly some racial undertones there. There was something about that relationship between Jerry and Frank Cushman that I didn't really care about because it was a foregone conclusion. He was not going to keep that client. And maybe it's just... Yeah, right. There's no movie if he does. There's no movie. So maybe that knowledge, I'd written them off. It didn't really matter to me how they went away. I just knew they were going to go away. And I actually think in a worse movie, at the end of it, you would see Jerry O'Connell come up to Jerry and say, listen, I'm sorry... 
my father was out of line. I'm doing something to get out of the contract, and I want you to represent me going forward, and my father's out of the picture. The last time we see Frank, we don't know who he went to, either San Diego or Denver, and he says something like, I'm loving life. Things are great. Exactly. We see him very briefly, and then we assume he's playing well, but that's the end of it. And I think that's a smart move on Cameron Crowe's part to not necessarily throw the good guy succeeds in the end card to the nth degree, right? That's why I say in a worse movie, that would have been the end game. In reality, this guy's still a first overall pick. He still went to some team. He's being very successful. He's very rich and he's loving life. And Jerry Maguire can be successful even without Frank Cushman. We talked about that awkward hug with Jay Moore and one of his representatives at the end of the movie. That whole interaction between Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character and Tom Cruise's character at the end with the hugging and the close relationship because that was part of the press scrum, people are going to see that. Oh, yeah. And players are interested in that level of caring and personal attention from their agents, so it's not just a business relationship. So you get the sense that Jerry Maguire will be successful on a professional level. He doesn't need to reconcile with all of these other clients, Frank Cushman included. He'll get the clients he needs, irrespective of him. You know, there's a few things about Jerry as an agent that don't really hold up, and somebody pointed this out online. I'd never thought of this before, but doing the research for it, I saw it and thought this is a very fair point. The whole notion that he tries to sign all these people the day he talks to Rod on the phone and then he's got about eight or maybe even ten call waitings, but because Rod takes so long, they're all gone and all he keeps is Rod. Yeah. But Jerry works for SMI. When he's fired, and I don't know that much about sports agents, obviously, but I don't think he has any right to any of them. The whole thing about trying to get Cushman or keeping Rod or keeping the other people we see on the phone, the fun moment where the girl pretends to cry and then, hi, this is Kathy Sanders. They could go to him at some point, but they can't just break a contract with their agent. And if they did, they'd be sued, or I don't know how that stuff works. But if yeah. that Kathy Sanders person, or if Cushman, or Rod, or anyone else, well, Rod does, stay with Jerry, I don't know how that stuff works, but it doesn't really seem legal in the first place. It's almost like this is another fantasy in this movie where they could go with him at all. I have to believe that that's just a function of whatever the contract would actually say. How often do we see players change agents mid-season? Do we? Oh, all the time. Whether or not you sign a contract with an agent, there's a clause in there that says you have to give me at least a year or something like that, or you have to give me a shot at the next contract. I would assume that in every pro representation contract, there's an option for the player to opt out and choose a different representative, which I guess in essence is what these guys would do if they left SMI to stick with Jerry Maguire. Of all the weird things that Jerry Maguire does in this movie, that's the thing that bothers me the least. As much as I didn't care about his relationship with Frank Cushman, I agree with you. One of the things that struck me as the most discordant was the fact that he walked away from the Cushman house and took the guy's word when he was so desperately trying to cling to every single player that he could. Especially this one. Especially this one. You would die to get this guy's signature on a piece of paper before you left his house, right? That's the reason you're there. Which is another reason why the way it all went down later on, I didn't really care about. You kind of screwed the pooch already, Jerry. I don't really blame any of the players for not going with Jerry, though, because the story would have been, from someone else's point of view, would have gotten out there. You don't get the feeling Jerry's telling them, this is what really happened, kind of thing. Right. About why he had this epiphany in the middle of the night and wrote this mission statement. It's all about, I care about you as individuals. But I don't blame athletes. Some of them, as we've said in other podcasts, probably not that bright who have been focused on their athletic career their whole life. They're not lawyers. They don't care about this kind of stuff that much. That's why you hire lawyers and agents, and you get a crew to help you get through this stuff, and why we find out that the people that pick the wrong people, like a Mike Tyson or something like that, end up going bankrupt because they get screwed. But I don't blame these people for sticking with SMI because this is a well-known agency. Here's a guy who they've been told flipped out, but regardless of any of that, got fired. So you stick with a company that you know versus the individual. I don't really blame them. I wouldn't either. 
this is your livelihood. If you're a player that might only have a shot at one, maybe two big contracts to set you up for life, you don't want to take a risk on a guy that's just gone AWOL on his agency and whether he was fired or quit doesn't really matter. Like you said, he's flipped out. He's written a weird manifesto. I don't know what this guy's going to do next. He's a maverick at this point. And one of the scenes I'm surprised we haven't talked about is his quitting scene. It just occurred to me he's safe. It's a freaking fantastic scene. Yeah. Not going to do what you all think I'm going to do, and which is just flip him out. <laughs> that is perfect. I love the way some of the actors run away from him. Yeah. Almost like they didn't know Cruz was going to do that. And maybe they were supposed to react the way they reacted, but it felt like it was real to them. Holy shit, yeah. is Tom going to hit me with that briefcase? The reaction shots, the way he plays it. I forgot about the fish thing, too. Yeah, that flipper. Was flipper, yeah, into the Ziploc bag. Which is a recurring theme. This movie is a lot about setup and payoff. Earlier on, he had said to the woman on the plane, I don't like big scenes. And yet he has so many big scenes. That moment when he gets fired That's later right. on the day, obviously the scene at the end of the movie in Dorothy's living room. But another setup and payoff is that fish because we see it multiple times. We see it in Ray's room when Jerry's going to leave. And he says, it's a mission statement because he's leaving Dorothy because she basically says, go away. I don't want to be with somebody who doesn't want to be with me. But it also reminds me of that line when everyone walks out, a friend walks in. Rod does. Dorothy does, and Flipper does. <laughs> the fish is loyal to him. Crow says something about how the fish is his only friend, which is not really true because Rod is, and obviously Marcy becomes that. Yeah. When Dorothy and Jerry get married, there's a decent amount of people there. His friend Dooler, the guy who shot his bachelor party, he's also the commercial director when Rod won't do the camel commercial. So he's right. a friend the guy sees. He's at the wedding, so he's a, some kind of friend at least. Maybe he introduced him to his wife too, and they spent New Year's Eve together and that all that kind be, of yeah. stuff. Did you notice, incidentally, when we see the wedding scene, Dorothy, and this was a whirlwind romance, granted, but she doesn't even have an engagement ring. Even at that point, she didn't No, and now, I don't know, maybe it's the way some people do it when they get married is they put that somewhere else because then the wedding ring is the focus of that moment, and then you live your life like Bev does where you wear both rings. Right. But in that moment, I looked. Neither of them, well, he wouldn't have a ring on yet because they're just getting married. But then again, at the very end, even though they're not divorced and it hasn't been that long, they've both taken it off. Huh. She's not wearing it at the end, and neither is he. Oh, all these signs. No, no not touches. Looking, not looking good. This I hate to rain on people's parade. I love this movie. I know a lot of other people do too, but this romance is not going to last. But Marcy and Rod Tidwell will last forever, as long as he doesn't lose his life on the football field next year. It's a testament to how good Cuba Gooding's performance was that not only is his relationship with Regina King in this movie so good, even his scenes with Tom Cruise as an actor. So Tom Cruise... They're and, great together. They're great together. The man standing there naked... Mm -hmm. For an extended scene with Tom Cruise, my feelings about the Quan aside, <laughs> having a fantastic heart-to-heart -heart conversation. And, you were uh, hanging on by a very thin thread, and I take that about you. <laughs> the way he delivers the throwaway line of, do you want a towel? I air dry. <laughs> Total deadpan straight face. I'm a little well, bit surprised but... that Jerry would be so uncomfortable in that situation because he's been in locker rooms with naked guys before. Earlier in that scene you talked about where Rod's not getting talked to by anybody, we see the blonde woman in the locker room drops the mic and she has to pick it up and her head is right at the player's dick. He's turned in such a way we can't see the penis, but obviously her head is about a foot away from that. That's but... Bit of a dick move by the player to not put a towel on while he's being interviewed by the reporter. Yeah, I've never been in a locker room with guys doing this. I'm sure they do. They probably still do now. But if you're going to be interviewed, you could just throw something on for a, Put a, take towel a second. On. For yeah. God's sakes, man. Yeah. Walk around in the locker room, you could do the whole sort of, if women want to come to the locker room and they got to see us walk around naked, I can understand that. But if they're going to be actually officially interviewed, you're it takes filmed. three seconds to put on a towel. Yeah, I mean, or your underwear. No, no, let's not go overboard here. Just a towel. A towel's fine. you got to let some airflow in there until you're dry. Well, we keep on talking about nice touches. One of the better touches in the whole movie is when Jerry thinks he's set after he thinks he signed Cushman, but he hasn't. He's looking for good songs on the radio, and then he comes across, Now I'm free, 
free falling. Maybe that's the way Tom Petty wrote that song, but that's great. It's free, of course, is a wonderful notion, but free falling, not so nice. You're saying it's a little foreshadowing of the Clearly the it is. To go? It's a great choice of music. And of course, Cameron Crowe is one of the great music directors. Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, many others, but I think Cameron Crowe is in that class too. He picks songs very well. Good music in this movie. I mentioned a couple times that this movie reminded me of The Simpsons more than once. We talked about the dubbed over bachelor party video my friend mr black and then of course you reference the hand gesture that means the money it means the money the finger thing means the money did you notice the of course you must have noticed the flash up in rod we trust mm-hmm. moment and yep. all i could think of was oh come on please somebody make a meme of the inanimate carbon rod doing the victory dance at the end of that game just straight out of the simpsons a trifecta of straight quotes from the Simpsons almost that just the brought Simpsons a smile to my face. Because it would it. have been contemporaneous almost to this too. Those moments yeah. were all mid to late 90s moments in the TV show. Two years before, yeah. Probably around the same time. Whether or not one influenced the other, I don't know. You would see that on a scoreboard in a baseball stadium or a football stadium or a basketball stadium going for that lame pun for sure. So really. Sports writers are not necessarily known for their imaginative nickname. Neither are news writers. No. Fair. I work in news. Listen to the way those people love their puns. Let me give you some facts, by the way, because this is a sports movie. The real Cardinals in Arizona last made the playoffs because they were going to in this year, in 1996, in this movie. In 1982, that was the last time they made the playoffs before this movie, and then they made it two years later in 1998. I think since then, in the Hmm. 20 or so years, they've made it quite a few times. Didn't they get to a Super Bowl once? I think when Kurt Warner went to the Cardinals late in his career, they either had a deep playoff run or went to the Super Bowl. But they've had some After being success. mediocre or bad for a long time. That's right. So I guess the movie influenced the real team. It inspired them. It and, completed them. And I wouldn't mind playing in Phoenix. Good weather. Good weather. That might be about all there is to have in <laughs> Phoenix, frankly. Fairly big city, I think, isn't it? Funny, now that you say it, it just occurs to me. As long as we've talked about this, we barely touched on the actual sport as portrayed. Well, there in this isn't movie. that much. It's almost like the hurricane, where yes, it's a sports movie, but there's not that much football. We also yeah. see very brief scenes of baseball. Art Stallings, the kid who hits a home run, in the montage scene, you see the gymnast and some other stuff. But obviously, it's mostly a football movie. How did you frame it earlier? It sets something up and pays it off later. After the first game of the season, when Jerry and Rod are talking, right, after the game, and Jerry's saying, hey, great game, and Rod's saying, the quarterback's going to kill me. He's mm-hmm. throwing it high and through the middle. He's going to get me murdered. And then, of course, that's exactly what happens in that final yeah. play of the movie, is he throws the ball to Tidwell in the end zone, but he throws it high and right through the defense so that he gets just smashed. Yeah. So it sets up the fact that this is the way the quarterback has been playing all year, Clearly, Tidwell's taken some beatings throughout the whole year. Yeah, another sad moment. We are really raining on this movie's parade, but this guy does not have long to play as a football player, I don't think. If he gets that three more years in that contract and plays them all and plays them well, then that's a miracle from God because I don't think he's going to. What's the average career length in the NFL? Something like four years, Four or five I think. years, yeah. You've got some players that will last nearly 20. Look at Tom Brady now, right? He's yeah. 41, 42. Seems uh, to be quarterbacks of all people that last the longest. Well, you don't hear about linemen being 41 or 42. No, but quarterbacks will get hit, but at least over the last 10 to 15 Not years. Not every play, like yeah, linemen do. The NFL recognize that the quarterbacks are the faces of the league, and yeah. they're the ones, by and large, that people know and want to see. So they've gone out of their way to reduce if not eliminate those dirty hits those hits after the play they're more protected linemen wide receivers running backs they're the ones that get torn up and concussed and shredded to bits because they're getting punished we talked about this other other football movie like friday night lights we talked about this about how the linemen every single play are hitting each other and then in practices and when they are trying to get to the nfl as kids in college or just playing in high school or pick up with their friends these people have taken 
car crash level hits to each other, padding and helmets notwithstanding, tens of thousands of times. Yeah. It's incredible. All of them don't have it. Maybe they all do have some kind of concussion problems. It's true, and that's why I thought it was a nice little touch that they did stick Tidwell in the MRI Mm-hmm. Or the cat's never game shutting game. up even then. Even if he doesn't have a concussion, and like you said, I think he probably does, and probably will have many more before he's retired. At least acknowledge that this guy has been punished. Well, we're talking about athleticism, and one thing that's very key to this movie: Tom Cruise gets to sprint when he oh, runs yeah. down the runway, and he runs out of the stadium. But Tom Cruise in movies, especially in the last twenty or so years, has got to run. He's one of the best runners out there, yeah. and he's probably faster than Cuba Gooding Jr. Who's playing the athlete? It is a little strange that at the end of the movie, in order to get back to Dorothy, he does sprint off the roof of the building, grab the bottom of the helicopter, and then ride that to her house. <laughs> Have I, you I, seen I, Mission Impossible Fallout, by the way? Not yet. Man, there's some stunts in that movie, like including a helicopter. That's why I thought of it when you said it. Isn't that the stunt where he busted his ankle? Not that stunt. No, it's when he one? jumps from one building to another. Oh, okay. Yeah. But the helicopter thing apparently also shot real. Yes, he's got cables on him, but what are you doing, man? It's it will not surprise me one iota if there's a story one day. A Twitter thing. You'll see Tom Cruise. Oh, what's the movie going to be? Because people always worry when it's an older person. Oh, God, Jack Nicholson. Oh, no, it's not dead. Whatever the thread's going, it's not that he's dead. But if it's Tom Cruise, no one's going to think he died except for the fact that he is skirting death in his movies over and over again. So if we find out he did, Tom Cruise fell from the top of the Hoover Dam. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Actor jumping out of plane with no parachute for a movie stunt died. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. Well, you got to respect the dedication to the craft. And like you said earlier, the man acts hard right down to the stunts he does. Well, we've covered stunt. him in Days of Thunder and Color of Money and now this. And I think this is the best thing he's done. Those three movies for sure. And maybe his best work ever, partly because he's a little bit against type. I think we've spent long enough now, Ryan, dancing around the core character of this movie. Somebody we've not touched on yet, but deserves, I think, lengthy and critical examination. Chad. The child technician. <laughs> the Todd, child technician. Todd Lovizo. Au pair. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty good, too. Small role, but also pretty good in this movie. He's in High Fidelity. He's fun in that one, yeah. too. Same kind of character. Such I a guess silly character. He's one of those actors that plays Todd Lovizo all the time. Doesn't yeah. have a lot of range. At first, I wondered what the hell that character was actually doing in the movie. When Renee Zellweger finally invites Tom Cruise into her home after their date, Chad's giving Jerry all the advice. Yeah. Jerry it, thinks he's going for a condom. No, no, Chad, I got this. No, no, play this. And then, of course, the whole, what the hell is this right. music moment later, which is fair. I don't understand jazz either. That's a fun moment, actually, when they both start laughing because yeah. I like when they cut to Bonnie Hunt. She's eating the leftovers and she seems to be smoking a joint, or maybe it's a cigarette. I think it's a joint. But she laughs, too, because she can hear them giggling. Her sister's obsessed with this guy, and Laurel very well knows that. And in the moment, Jerry's into her. She looked great that night wearing the Audrey Hepburn dress. And I like the moment that you cut to the sister also enjoying it. Not in that way, but enjoying the fact that they're enjoying themselves. It comes back to almost like the motherly aspect of her just being happy that her younger sister slash almost ward is actually happy. And that's all she's going to say. That's, yeah, that's all she's going to say. And then later, of course, when it looked like Dorothy was going to move to San Diego and they're packing her up and it's Bonnie Hunt saying, I almost feel sorry for Jerry Maguire because he so can't be alone. And you look out the window and he's virtually clinging to Chad, right? I get it, Jerry. I thought I was the pathetic loser in this movie, but I love you, man. Let's go later. As Chad walks away, you see Jerry offer a handshake. (laughs) Anything? Any kind of contact at all? No handshake? Okay, we'll catch up later. Okay, we'll go catch some jazz. And then he proposes because he's clinging to the bottom wrong, best he can. He's got to have something. 
the fact that Dorothy actually accepted the proposal was a little bit... Oh, I believe that. She's in love with this guy. She's beyond love, whatever the word. She's loving him, as Woody Allen so? might say. Absolutely. Yeah. Really? Not that she loves the guy, but the fact that she's going to leave. She knows his bachelor party video. She knows the whole he can't be alone thing. She's just watched him physically assault Chad to try to keep him <laughs> from leaving. She knows this man is pathetically desperate to have anybody in his life. You know why she did it? To answer your question, I'll cut you off here. Yeah. She talks about how Roger died. That's right. He was good looking. He was popular and he wasn't very nice to me and he died, Laurel. So she's been through this before. Not that Jerry's a bad guy at all because she has that whole thing about, oh, I love him. I love him for the man he wants to be and I love him for the man that he almost is. Which I guess through the whole movie, as we've been saying, he really never was that bad guy. He was always a pretty good guy. It's a good arc, but maybe it's a little more planned in Cameron Crowe's mind than executed as him yeah. being some shithead that turns into this great guy. It's not he so was much never that bad. An arc as it is, just kind of like a flat line. <laughs> well, it's it's more a, an arc than a flat line, I would say. A slight incline, perhaps. But it's, anyway, she wants him so badly. Haven't you been through that before, or at least experienced that, that whole thing? I've been through that when I was dating long before I met Bev. There's a woman I was crazy about. And then we were supposed to just be friends, and we got talking online, and then one thing led to another, and she already rejected me. And I jumped at the chance to take whatever I could get, and I got myself hurt, and it was my fucking fault. I get I've that. I've been I get... Dorothy. That's Dorothy. Just, the desire I get, let's jump to marriage. It's not like, let's move in together, or let's find a way to make this relationship Maybe that's work. an homage to old movies where they get married if they knew each other for a day. Maybe. This also, is a fantasy film. We've established that. Yeah, yeah. What you said makes sense, and maybe I'm just overanalyzing it. It was just kind of funny. He does pull her sunglasses to the side, and you see the single mm-hmm. tear coming. So it's clear that this is something she desperately wanted. And she said she's the world's oldest 26-year-old in this movie. Mm. You're 26, you have a five-year-old son, and you're now a single mom. Your husband has died on you. Quits her job for a guy that she barely knows, but she's in love with because she wants to be inspired, which is a little irresponsible considering she does have a kid to take care of. Well, the Bonnie Hunt character says that you can't afford to chase these aspirational things or these high hopes. You have to be practical because you're a single mom and you've got this kid to look at. You will love medical. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's a true American thing right there. Doesn't he say that during the proposal? It's like, we'll find a way to cut costs. Let's get married. You could be part of my medical insurance. Like, you'll be a spouse now under my Mm. bed. We'll save money. Romantic. Kind of obsessive romantic and kind of weirdly practical, I guess, maybe. So maybe I've talked myself into it. A little secret for you. When I proposed to Bev, first thing I said, benefits. Bullshit, she has benefits too. (laughs) Ah. Well, you Actually, me, no, I, I have great benefits. Sorry, Ryan, I have good benefits too. I, Damn it! Life's expensive sometimes. I don't, I don't begrudge somebody trying to save money, especially in a city like Toronto. My score for this movie, partly because I love it. It's not, not that many flaws, I guess, but we've pointed out some of them. 9 out of 10. One of my favorite movies we've covered. Not the best sports movie we've covered, but just pure favorite movie. It's in the top 5 at least. I agree with you. I think it's 9 out of 10. I think there's... The sports some, is a 7 at best. Which is weird for a movie that centers around athletes, but it's almost mm. incidental, right? Like, it probably shouldn't have made the sports list, but it was number 10. But there's still sports portrayed. I nitpicked on one or two scenes or one or two aspects of the movie that maybe don't age quite so well, but even still play, I guess, a little bit of a role in it. And there's so many good performances in this movie. I freaking love Tom Cruise and most everything I see him in. Regina King is fantastic. Cuba Gooding Jr. is fantastic and, of course, won the Oscar for this. Bonnie Hunt is fantastic. That's all Wagger. You don't like her as much. I don't like her as much, which isn't to say she's bad. In my eyes, there's some great performances in a rom-com, of all things, which is just a little bit mind-blowing to me, quite frankly. And a sports movie, because they don't usually feature Academy Award-level performances or even nominated performances. No, absolutely. So I think it's a fantastic movie. It's a fun movie. Two hours and 14 minutes, but it feels like an hour and a half because of the performances and the way it flows. And even the small performances, the Jay Moores and the Kelly Prestons are very good, and they serve their role, and they do it well. 
right down to Kelly Preston showing up at the end of the movie. Flips off Tom Cruise, calls him a loser. At the end but of a the nice movie. touch, though. I never noticed this the first time I saw the movie, but I noticed it maybe the third or fourth time a long time ago. One of the montage scenes, Jerry's on one of those moving walkway things in the airport, right. and he lifts up his bag like a salute kind of hello thing, and the person going the other direction is her. It's oh, clearly right. a woman. I knew that, but I didn't realize it was Kelly Preston. So as much as there's animosity between the two of them, they're not going to talk to each other. They're not ever going to be friends. But there's a basic respect of, okay, we're well, fine. That kind of fits with their relationship, quite frankly, too. Mm-hmm. It's mostly just a physical thing. And as much as... And she does beat the living shit out of him when they break up. Kelly Preston trained with a relatively well-known fighter to... Really? For yeah. just a couple of punches in one Sugar scene. Maybe Ray. Really? <laughs> she's totally believable when she She wanted him. it to be believable when she beat up Tom Cruise. <laughs> okay, well... Excellent movie. Had a lot of fun watching it. So happy end of the year. Happy New Year, I guess, in a few days from now. Yeah. We're back in 2020, of course. So in two weeks, we'll be deep into the long winter. So let's talk about something summery and fun. We'll go completely against the grain of the winter and a lot lighter than what we've been covering lately. It's one of young Chris's favorites, also one of my favorites. Not so much my youth. I only saw this maybe 20 years ago. But The Sandlot. Yeah. 1993? Yes. Fun baseball movie. Fun baseball movie. And yeah, perfectly suited to mid-January. It'll probably be snowing that day. We're on Stitcher and Spotify and Apple Podcasts yeah. under Top 100 Project, but this is Scoring at the Movies. Twitter, he is at Scoring at Movies. I am at MovieFiend51, and you can find everything that's ever been covered by me, Bev, and or Chris on Top100Project.com. So Dan Dell say, I don't have all the answers. In life, to be honest, I've failed way more than I've succeeded. But I love my wife. I tolerate my life. And I wish you at least that much success. And that's all I'm going to say.